ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Wednesday, the 6th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, global climate talks in Dubai tackle the issue of methane emissions. And beetle mania. Are Christmas beetles back? The tiny creatures that signal the festive season in many parts of eastern Australia. Back with a vengeance. Haven't seen them for a couple of years and we had the mass kamikaze attack last night. Three Christmas beetles came back. I was so excited. Last summer, there were sightings of four species that previously hadn't been seen in decades. First today, new laws that could result in some former immigration detainees being put back behind bars are set to pass federal parliament today. To return those people to detention, the government will need to apply to a court for it to assess the risk of each individual, but it's refusing to say how many applications it will make. For more, our political reporter Evelyn Manfield joins us now from our Parliament House studio. Evelyn, can you tell us what the laws will look to do? Sally, they'll look to lock up some of the individuals. So it's worth going back through the history. This all comes after a High Court ruling four weeks ago now found indefinite immigration detention was illegal. And the challenge was centred on the case of a Rohingya man. He's referred to as NZYQ. He'd been in immigration detention after serving a sentence for child sex offences and couldn't be deported. And since this High Court decision, about 150 non-citizens, including criminals, have been released from immigration detention. Since then, they've also been subject to surveillance measures, including ankle bracelets and curfews, which have prompted high court challenges as well. But under pressure, particularly from the coalition, the government is rushing through legislation through Parliament today. Now, that legislation passed the Senate late yesterday and the government is determined for it to pass the House today. Now, these new laws, as I mentioned, will allow a court to put someone back behind bars if they are at risk of re-offending. The Attorney-General, the Minister for Home Affairs and the Minister for Immigration held a press conference a short time ago and they were very keen to point out that this legislation that they've been working on, they do believe is constitutional. The Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus pointing out that Australians are not safer by laws struck down by the High Court. Now, here is Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill speaking earlier. Let's just remember here that this will be our third go as a parliament at making citizenship laws. Peter Dutton has already stuffed this up twice. Do not make these laws unconstitutional again. We have an opportunity here, a rare opportunity, to put in place a piece of our national security architecture. We are confident these laws are constitutional. Don't stuff it up again by playing games as the coalition has been doing for this past week. That's the Home Affairs Minister there, Claire O'Neill. And Evelyn, what's the opposition saying on the issue? 
Well, throughout this all, really, the opposition has been very critical of the government's handling. They've said that the government has botched this and has put the Australian community at risk. They've also said that it's taken too long for the government to respond and they should have been better prepared by having some of this legislation ready to go. The government has, of course, defended the speed at which it has um, put through this new legislation through Parliament. But nonetheless, here's the opposition's Our worry is uh, that it's an incredibly small number. All we've seen is the legal advice that was presented to the Senate yesterday, uh, but our worry is that it will be an incredibly small number, and that is why the government needs to act to make sure that it's continuing to make every effort to deport these people. That's the Shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tien there. Evelyn, we know three of these released detainees have been accused of allegedly re-offending. What has the government had to say about that? So in in recent days, as you mentioned, three of these former detainees, so out of this group of about 150, have been accused of re-offending. That includes one man who's been charged with indecent assaults in South Australia, and he appeared in a court in Adelaide on Monday. Now, the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, was asked at this press conference a little earlier today if the government would apologise for for these uh, alleged offences. He got quite fired up in response to that and said it was an absurd question and said the government was not going to apologise for upholding the law of Australia. That's our political reporter Evelyn Manfield at Federal Parliament House in Canberra. Well, to the economy now, and Australia's economy is slowing dramatically as aggressive interest rate rises and cost of living pressures eat into household budgets. Economic growth in the third quarter of this year has come in at just 0.2%, well below the forecasts of most analysts. For more, I'm joined now by our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Uh, Peter, this is is quite a steep fall. Could Australia's economy be heading towards the territory of recession? Well, Sally, not just yet because this is still economic growth, but yes, it is close to flatlining in the three months to September. According to the Bureau of Statistics, growth of just 0.2% seasonally adjusted. The forecasts have been for 0.4%, though it still makes a respectable 2.1% growth over the year. And to be clear, you do need two quarters of negative growth or a contraction for a technical recession, and we haven't even had one yet. In the glass half full sense, it's the eighth straight rise in quarterly GDP, but growth is slowing quickly. Household spending is flat as household budgets are cut to deal with those 13 interest rate rises since May last year and the higher cost of living, which is forcing some pretty hard spending decisions, especially with mortgage repayment surging and other households preparing for what's known as that mortgage cliff as they move from those very low fixed interest rates into a higher interest rates world. Peter, as you say, there is still some economic growth there, even though it's slowing. So what do you think is holding up the economy at the moment? Sally, it's uh, pretty much uh, the government. Government spending, a big contributor, up by 1.1%. We've had state and federal governments pumping money into social benefit schemes for households such as the Energy Bill Relief Fund, the Child Care Subsidy, Defence Spending, 
spending is also a big contributor with the big international training exercises in the quarter. Also, a lot of new public investment, as you'll see around the country, big infrastructure projects in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Also, private investment up with spending on mining infrastructure and also what's known as ownership transfer costs, uh, we'd call stamp duty, from a lot of uh, property market action pumping more money into the economy. But in the terms of trade, uh, they've fallen by 2.6% um, as export prices fell, import prices rose, though the commodities demand continues to under- underwrite Treasury coffers, which is why Treasurer Jim Chalmers is pos- possibly looking at a budget surplus when he announces next week's mid-year budget update. So, Peter, given the slowing economy, what are the chances of another interest rate rise? Well, uh, we did see the Reserve Bank lead the cash rate on hold yesterday at 4.35%, noting that inflation is slowing, but still well above the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target. They remain resolute in doing whatever it takes to tame inflation, but this slower economic growth is the evidence they'll be needing to see that interest rate rises are working. They have been lagging indicators. So slowing the economy, um, pulling inflation down without losing record jobs gains. There's going to be a very close watch on monthly inflation and quarterly inflation out on January the 31st to see if inflation is in fact falling, but any rebound would put a rate rise in February back on the agenda. But for now, the view is that rates will be staying higher for longer, that the RBA's rate rises might have peaked, raising the chance, the chance, I repeat, of interest rate cuts by the end of the year. Peter, thank you very much. That's our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan there. If a federal politician meets with a gambling lobbyist, should they be required to share that information with the public? There's a fresh push for greater transparency when it comes to the role that lobbyists play in federal parliament, with new research revealing the gambling industry employs more lobbying firms than any other industry in the country. Oliver Gordon reports. Most of us have been exposed to the gambling industry's public attempts to drum up business. Your Aussie sports are built different, just like the points bet app. It's faster, easier, unique markets. Some estimates place the amount of ads airing on free-to-air TV each year more than one million. But it's what's happening behind closed doors that's the subject of a new research paper by the University of Melbourne and Transparency International. Transparency International's chief executive is Clancy Moore. So the research found that the gambling industry has access to up to 280 lobbyists who walk the halls of parliament, uh, often meeting with ministers and senior public servants in secret to advance their interest, often against the public interest as well. The research also found evidence of a so-called revolving door between gambling companies, regulators and the halls of power. And this has a really corrosive impact on the policymaking process because these former ministers make very good lobbyists. They have access to inside information, contacts and influence over government decision making. Clancy Moore is urging federal MPs and senators to back changes proposed by Teal MP Monique Ryan last month that would force federal parliamentarians to publish their diaries. So in other jurisdictions like Canada, the US and the UK and even Ireland, uh, they have very strong transparency regimes which, which require ministers to publish their diaries. It also requires lobbyists to 
update who they've met with in Parliament regularly and have far greater penalties for lobbyists or people that breach laws around lobbying. For example, in, in the UK and, and US, uh, there are very high levels of fines that people can pay, but people can also go to jail in some jurisdictions if they're found to breach the, the relevant laws. Whereas in Australia, all that happens if you breach the lobbying code of conduct is that you get removed from the lobbyist register. So I think there's some room to improve on that front as well. The Alliance for Gambling Reform is backing the bill too. Chief Executive Carol Bennett. The Monique Ryan bill will require that all lobbyists are registered and comply with much higher standards of conduct. And, you know, that would be welcome because it's much needed, particularly when governments are making the rules and the regulations around powerful industries like the gambling industry. She says there's also broad support for changes to gambling advertising, citing a survey of a 1,000 people the advocacy organisation recently commissioned. So we had a survey conducted by Pure Poll, uh, which showed that um, 77% of Australians said that uh, they were really concerned about sport and gambling, uh, and particularly gambling advertising. And of those people, 71% wanted to see gambling advertising banned in sport. Earlier this year, the federal government launched a new voluntary betting exclusion register. There's also been a parliamentary inquiry, which has recommended a complete ban on gambling advertising within three years. When it comes to increasing public scrutiny... Transparency International's Clancy Moore says the government has taken some positive steps. He hopes new lobbying laws are next. Uh, We've seen the creation of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, moves to improve protections of people that blow the whistle, and hopefully in the future we'll also see greater transparency around lobbyists. Responsible Wagering Australia, which represents the online gambling industry, has been contacted for comment. That's Oliver Gordon. Right around Australia, you're listening to The World Today. Negotiations are intensifying at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai, known as COP28, as the deadline for an agreement draws near. Pressure is building on countries to deliver a meaningful commitment, but there are concerns about potential loopholes in the final language. Matt Bamford reports. At the COP28 climate conference in Dubai, demonstrators rally behind a banner that demands a fossil fuel phase-out. We know that uh, the fossil fuel industry sits at the very core, the very root of the climate crisis, often directly responsible for the violence that is subjected um, on our communities. Zaki Mamdou is a climate activist. Uh, And so phasing down is not an option. One, it is simply not enough to meet the crisis. It is not ambitious enough. It is not bold enough. To phase down or phase out fossil fuels has become a crucial question as negotiators work towards a final agreement. They've produced a new draft of what's expected to be in the final document called the Global Stock Take. The summit's CEO, Adnan Amin, says it's a promising sign. I think it provides a very good basis for moving forward. What we're particularly pleased about it is that it's this early in the process that we're at this stage, which allows a very meaningful uh, uh, engagement and negotiation process to happen. But some climate experts remain concerned. On Tuesday, scientists released the latest climate action tracker, which looks at pledges, policies and actions by nations and tries to calculate what kind of temperature increases that means. Bill Hare, CEO of Climate Analytics, says the findings show the world is going in the wrong direction. The context here, as we all know, is that the global stock take 
is showing that the world is way off track to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Our temperature estimates, as we'll hear, are pretty much flatlined. Since Paris, I think that's a really big concern. As the negotiations reach their critical phase, Australia is boosting its profile at the summit, with Minister for Climate Change and Energy Chris Bowen flying out to Dubai today. We certainly back a strengthening of language and efforts around the mitigation of climate change, and that's the negotiations I'm going into this evening. He says he'd be open to an agreement to phase out fossil fuels. Look, certainly a properly, fa- a properly phrased uh, move towards phase out, I would be comfortable with. But as, as I said, in my experience, uh, these words change around a lot. But is it realistic to expect countries like Australia to simply stop using fossil fuels? Professor Mark Howden is director at the Australian National University's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. The phase out language has been around for a while and there's a lot of pushback on that from fossil fuel dependent countries. Is it realistic? Um, It could be uh, in the final wording, uh, but it will be heavily caveated, is my suspicion. He says the wording of any final agreement will have big consequences. Look, I think everyone's interested in an orderly and just transition. The, The wording, though, misses out an extra word, and that is rapid. So what we need, very clearly the science shows, we need an orderly, just and rapid transition away from fossil fuels. And there are other measures he'd like to see. If language like unabated fossil fuels or abated fossil fuels gets inserted, it allows a lot of wriggle room because of propositions uh, to insert carbon capture and storage to reduce emissions from uh, significant you know, oil plants and similar things. And the problem there is that this is a largely untested technology at scale. The other debating point will come around the subsidies. So last year, I think the number was something like $7 trillion of fossil fuel subsidies across the globe. Are you feeling more optimistic or pessimistic about uh, getting a meaningful agreement? I think it's shaping up a little bit better than I anticipated, but I think it will fall well short of the fairly ambitious Uh, action needed uh, to put a cap on climate change. Our emissions continue to go up, so they've gone up this year to record levels again. Uh, And so we haven't got the foot on the climate change brake at the moment. We've still got it firmly on the climate change accelerator. The deadline for an agreement is December 12. That's Matt Bamford there. Well, staying with climate and for all the talk about carbon as the source of the world's climate woes, another greenhouse gas is arguably more damaging, at least in the short term. Methane is far more potent than carbon as a heating agent in the atmosphere. And that's led to increased efforts at this year's UN climate talks in the United Arab Emirates. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. Like many of the 100,000 people wandering around the vast Expo City complex in Dubai, Sam Elsom admits to being somewhat overwhelmed. So uh, I'm only on day two and, you know, it's it's a bit to get your head around. It's an enormous event and... Um, but it's an exciting opportunity for us. With the 28th annual UN Climate Talks known as COP well underway, Sam Elson isn't wasting time. He's pressing the flesh with political leaders and the heads of some of the biggest companies in the world. His task? To convince them of the merits of the product his company Seaforest is developing, a seaweed that can be added to the diets of livestock to slash their methane emissions. So when we talk about greenhouse gases, uh, the United Nations puts them into what they call GWP or global warming potential and they benchmark all gases against carbon. Methane is a gas, it's a short-lived atmospheric gas 
and in the first year that it's emitted into the atmosphere, it has 120 times the warming effect of carbon dioxide. Sam Elson is not alone in his focus on methane at COP28. Already there's been a flurry of announcements and initiatives aimed at trying to dramatically reduce the amount of methane escaping into the atmosphere each year. On Sunday, a group of some of the world's biggest oil and gas producers promised to eliminate methane emissions from their own operations by 2030. It followed a commitment by the US to slash America's methane emissions by 80% within 15 years. Susie Smith is the head of the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network, which represents many of the country's biggest energy producers and users. Globally, methane hasn't been particularly well reported. I think Australia is an exception in that regard. It doesn't mean that there isn't areas that we can continue to, to sense check and be more transparent on. And then in terms of reduction uh, within Australia, uh, I keep coming back to the principle it's not about just pr uh, reducing methane. We have to reduce all of our greenhouse gas emissions. On the sidelines of COP28, Queensland Deputy Premier Stephen Miles is upbeat. Queensland is one of the biggest sources of methane emissions in Australia, courtesy of its coal seam gas industry, its coal mines and the state's massive cattle herd. Despite this, he stresses resource companies are trying to prevent fugitive methane emissions. Oh, look, I think across, uh, across addressing climate in every regard, we need to do more, we need to redouble our efforts, and that's government, that is all industries, uh, everyone who's making an impact. For Seaforest boss Sam Elson, tackling methane emissions urgently offers one of the surest paths to limiting global warming. In the context of methane, I think agriculture is like low-hanging fruit. It's something that we can go after and, and get outcomes today. That's Seaforest boss Sam Elsom ending that report from Daniel Mercer. Finally today, Christmas beetles have long signalled the start of the festive season, but there have been concerns they could be in decline. Now, sightings of the popular scarab across the eastern seaboard are fueling hopes of a comeback. Flint Duxfield reports. On ABC Radio Sydney recently, there's been one topic that's been attracting a lot of attention. The beetles are back. Christmas beetles, James, and they're back with a vengeance. Haven't seen them for a couple of years, and we had the mass kamikaze attack last night. Last night, early evening, three Christmas beetles came back. I was so excited. Although exactly how big the resurgence is, is a little unclear. One caller put it to host James Valentine like this. There was hordes, there was hordes. Hordes, you describe. What, in the, in the, in the hundreds? Oh, about eight of them this morning. Eight. <laughs> oh, that's a horde. I think eight, eight qualifies for a horde. Getting a handle on Christmas beetle numbers is also a tricky business for scientists. Associate Professor Tanya Latti is an entomologist at the University of Sydney. Everybody I talk to pretty much has the same story. When they were young, there were lots of Christmas beetles. Now there aren't that many. And it's tricky because if, you know, if there's one person that was saying that, I'd think, well, you know, human memories are pretty, pretty questionable a lot of the time. And maybe we're misremembering things or something. But it's just such a consistent story, including from other entomologists, that they remember seeing lots when they were younger. But because we don't have data, we can't say for sure that there's a decline. But I know I'm personally pretty concerned because everything I've read and everyone I've talked talk to makes it seem like something has changed probably in the last 15 to 20 years-ish. Something's gone a little awry and we're just not getting those numbers anymore. Christmas beetles are traditionally found all around Australia, except in the deserts, but are most prolific on the East Coast. Dr Laddie believes if there has been a decline, it's most likely due to habitat loss through native bush clearing. She says because of the important role they play in the ecosystem, Christmas beetle numbers have significant impacts on other species. They traditionally emerge 
in huge numbers in the you know late spring, early summer, which is right at the time that a lot of other animals like mammals and reptiles, birds have their young. Uh, and so they're a very predictable source of protein because these guys are basically flying balls of protein and fat. Like they're pretty easy to eat. They're pretty harmless. Um, they're this really important surge of food at a really crucial time of the year. While there's been several anecdotal sightings of what people think are Christmas beetles across the eastern seaboard in recent weeks, Dr Laddie says many people are confused about what they're actually seeing. The few times people have sent me pictures of like heaps of Christmas beetles, They've almost always actually been Argentinian lawn scarabs, which is a similar looking beetle, um, but it's much smaller than your classic Christmas beetle. It doesn't have any iridescence on it. And it's sort of got this mottled brown and darker brown patterning on it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of them around this year. We are getting heaps of those in our, in our light traps. And I suspect that's what people are often misidentifying as Christmas beetles, potentially. To get a handle on what's happening with Christmas beetle numbers, Associate Professor Latty is running a citizen science program where the public can document beetle sightings by sending in photos. In just over a year since the program's been running, she says there's been over 8,000 sightings across Australia. Last summer... Uh, there were sightings of four species that previously hadn't been seen in decades. So it was the first time they'd been seen in like 30, 40 years in some cases. Uh, and in one case, uh, a person took a photo of a Christmas beetle for which the only other known specimen had been a dead male. So it was the first live photo of that particular species, which was really exciting. People interested in taking part in the Christmas Beetle Project are encouraged to submit their photos to the iNaturalist app or website. Flint Duxfield, and that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. It's part of the biggest road project ever built in Australia. When the complex maze of tunnels and roads opened in Sydney last month, it became apparent there was a major design flaw causing traffic chaos. Today, transport planner from the University of Technology Sydney, Michelle Zybots, on the political decisions keeping us off public transport and in traffic jams. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.